Hi, this is Samantha, and you're listening to the Layman Doctor Podcast, where we're bringing medicine home. And today, after being asked by a lot of persons, after talking about USMLE and talking about PLAB, persons have been asking me to have a podcast on the Canadian exam, and finally found two persons, actually, who did the exam. So we have two podcasts coming out on how to go from Jamaica to Canada. Today, I have with me Dr. Alicia Polak, and I'm going to just ask her to introduce herself, and then we're going to start talking about her journey from being a doctor in Jamaica and now being a doctor in Canada doing her pediatric residency. Hi, everyone. So I'm Alicia Samantha mentioned. I'm a graduate of the MBBS class of 2017 from University of the West Indies, Mona, and I'm currently a first year pediatric resident at the University of Toronto. Okay, congratulations. I think many persons, we don't really talk about going to Canada, right? And a lot of persons, including myself, didn't really know how to get there. So can you tell us how did you decide to go to Canada and then like, how did you make those first steps to actually um, doing your residency in the country? Thank you. My story is a bit unconventional. So around 2017, when I finished my MBBS program, my family was deciding to move to Canada at the time. So it was more or less a family decision before it became a personal decision but at the time I was just starting an internship I wasn't really too interested or keen in moving it was going to be my first job finally getting a paycheck and so I had put it off for I'd say maybe a year and closer to the end of internship like when I was just starting my senior host officer role I, I decided that you know it would be foolish of me to give up this opportunity and so that's really when I started to look more deeply into it. Uh, the first thing I'd say is I really didn't do much research before coming. Mm-hmm. I had reached out to one other person who had, at the time she was doing the process of trying to match as well. So she was the one who I had asked about tips for the exams, but really wasn't looking into doing anything, had tried studying, didn't work. And so in December of 2019, that's when I left and for 2020 most of the year was just trying to get those exams done trying to create a profile because we'll get into it but I I like to say that applying to residency is more than just exam scores but you're really creating an application and putting yourself out there selling yourself creating that package to a program and that's really what I did uh just to give you a little bit of a backstory or background after my degree finished 2017 i did one year of internship at the spanish town hospital then went on to do one year of senior house officer also at spanish town hospital Uh, i also did six months of pediatrics in a medical officer role and then at the end of that that's when i decided to come to canada so you actually left jamaica before matching into residency that's correct. I left Jamaica before doing any exams, before having a plan, before doing anything really. <laughs> I just knew that I was going to a new place. My family was there. I had their support and I was going to try something. Okay. Uh, so what was the process then for getting into their medical system? 
So a little bit of a preamble. Many persons will tell you that it's extremely difficult and I won't disagree. It's difficult, but it's not impossible. Uh, the first thing which I did do before leaving Jamaica was trying to get my qualifications verified. So through the Medical Council of Canada, I had to get my degree, my transcript, medical school transcript, also my internship year and license or registration. So I had to verify with Medical Council of Canada that I was registered with the Medical Council of Jamaica. And so I did those, uh, got that done before, because I knew this was at the time where I knew I was going to be coming. So I just did those things before. Sorry, how did you get them verified? Like this is from the Dean's office and from our medical council, or is it something from the Canadian council that they verified? So pre-COVID, it was by direct mail. So I had to mail hard copy documents of my medical school degree, medical school transcript, an internship letter, which I was requested from the Dean's office at the Faculty of Medicine at UWE, saying that I had completed internship in the core areas and that it was signed off by all of my consultants. And for the medical license or registration, I sent a copy of that document to the Medical Council of Canada and then what happens is for the degree and transcript, they actually contact the UWE Dean's Office or UWE Mono Medical Faculty Dean's Office, who would then verify through ECFMG as a third party. And then that gets back to Medical Council of Canada to say that the documents are true. And then final step is that the MCC or Medical Council of Canada would say that the documents are true, they've been assessed and verified. It's the same for the internship letter. The Medical Council of Jamaica, which issues the registration or certificates of license, they have to be the one to verify with MCC that, yes, I was in fact registered and as a practicing medical practitioner in good standing. And that's how the process basically went. I'm not sure if that's different now with COVID, but that's in a nutshell what, what I did. Okay. So you got them verified while you were still here. Yeah. Um, you and your family moved over and then I suppose they started exams or what happened after that? Uh, so after I verified my documents, so that was in 2018, I want to say. I still wasn't thinking about that. So I was still in Jamaica. I was still working. Uh, that wasn't on my mind. Exams weren't on my mind. I did start like trying to study. But again, that was very short-lived. It was too much while working, doing duties. So it was very hard. And I empathize a lot with my colleagues who are doing the same thing. But fast forward then to December 2019. I left at the end of the year, like right before New Year's Eve. Came here January 2020. That's when I started saying, okay, now I'm here. Now what? And I had to start figuring out how to go about even registering for, for the exams and setting a date, coming up with a plan, like a study timetable. It reminded me very much of my MBBS final exams in terms of studying, but basically putting myself in a position to be able to at least have the exams, because that's the first step, in order to apply, hopefully at the time, for the next cycle, which would have been the 2021 cycle. 
and in the in Canada it's called CARMS. It's the Canadian equivalent of ERAS, which is the US summary system or the US mm-hmm. residency matching system, but they're pretty much identical. What's the name of it again? So it's the CARMS is Canadian Resident Matching Service. That's the name oh. of it. Shortened CARMS. Okay. So all right, let's talk about the exam process first. Right. Um, how many exams did you have to do? So previously it was three exams that you'd have to do. When I started studying or late 2019, they got rid of the first exam, which some persons might know. So historically it was called the MCCEE, which stands for Medical Council of Canada Evaluating Exam. And then after that, you have the MCCQE1. There are a lot of abbreviations, but I'll explain. So that's the Medical Council of Canada Qualifying Exam Part 1, which is a multiple choice question. And for international medical graduates like myself, there's an OSCE called the NAC OSCE or the National Assessment Collaboration OSCE. And so I ended up having to do two exams. There is also a third exam called the MCCQE Part 2. So the Medical Council of Canada Qualifying Exam Part 2 that some persons would do in order to boost their profile. To be able to qualify for that exam, you'd have had to have some postgraduate training prior or be in a postgraduate program. But that has recently, just since this year, been terminated. So that's no longer available. Okay, so four exams in total. One was scrapped. And then you did two, and then the other one... one was stopped. So now it's just the two. That's right. Okay. And do you know, well, you obviously were finished, but with doing these exams, you'd have already had to pass MBBS already? No. Or is it... So it's similar to USMLE where you can actually do it before finishing your tr- your medical training exactly i think you have to be in your last year your final year though so graduating within that same year to oh. be able to do it okay and how did you register i want to get into like what the exams entailed and how mm-hmm. you prepped for it but sure. how did you register for it first okay so in terms of registration i, I mentioned earlier but there is this portal called physicians apply which is the Medical Council of Canada's portal that they use to deal with applicants, candidates, physicians, anyone really. So that same portal that was used to do the source verification and to verify all my documents, that's where you would apply. It's very formal. It's not that difficult to apply for the exams. You just go on the portal once you qualify, as we mentioned, you're graduating within that same year or you're already uh, completed medical training and qualify for the exam based on their requirements then you put that in they respond to you within a few days maybe a week, a week at most and then you're able to select the date so it's all done through that portal everything the payment for the exams they're all done through the portal okay and how much was it at the time when you took it uh so i did my exams last year I will say there are a lot of fees. There are a lot of fees, but it's an investment if you're going to take that path. Just to sign up with the Physicians Apply Portal, when I did it in 2018, it was about 265 Canadian to create the the account or for membership, mm-hmm. which 
I, I didn't know. So that was blind. So that's the first step. I was blindsided by that. But okay, so then you move on. In order to verify your documents, at the time, I think it was maybe $160 per document. So to do the four, I think it came up to 600 plus. And then get towards the exams, the multiple choice. So that's the MCCQE1. I did that last year. And that was 1305 Canadian. And then the NAC OSCE is a bit more expensive, almost three times the price. But that's $2,830 in Canadian, of course. In total, that's about, I think you spent maybe about 4000 Canadian. So 4000 for the exams, and if you included like the verification process, and that is about 5000 That's right. Okay. And it, it really is an investment. <laughs> to say the least. Yes. And then, I mean, you were already there, but then for persons listening, they will have to factor in travel True. and having somewhere to stay, plus trying to get the visa and everything to actually exactly. go over there. So True. So there are those costs too. And one good thing I will say, so last year I actually did my exam remotely. So I did it from home on my laptop, which I think was a great advancement or really novel in the world of exams because we're used to having to go there physically. So with the whole pandemic, they had come up with this idea to allow candidates to do the exams from home, given everything that was going on. So that was really great. I'm not sure if that will be continued because before you had to physically travel to Canada or another country where the exams are held. Up to my knowledge, as of 2019, there were no centers in Jamaica that administered that exam. So it would mean either traveling to the UK, Canada, somewhere, maybe the US. So as you mentioned, there would be that cost to travel and accommodation. But hopefully they'll keep it with the remote proctoring, allowing persons to do the exams from home. Yeah, that's really cool. I think this is the first time I've heard that they had the exams remotely in all of these conversations. So how did you go about studying and how long do you think it took you to study and prepare for the exams? So for me, I was very blessed because I did not have to be working and studying. And as I mentioned, that was especially hard for me. I've never had to do that before. So I took a break. I had worked for two and a half years in Jamaica, saved, was prepared to take at least a six-month break just to adequately prepare for my exams. So initially, I was supposed to take my exam in May. Due to the pandemic, it was postponed, so I did it in August. So I really spent eight months or a little bit less than eight, seven and a half months preparing for my exams. In terms of how I prepared, I initially just treated it like how I was preparing for my MBBS exam. So I used all my notes from medical school. And then I was talking to a colleague of mine and they suggested using the USMLE UWorld question bank because the exam, the MCCQE1, is actually quite similar to the Step 2 CK, so the clinical knowledge exam. And... I would say that those were my two main things. So my notes, I also use Toronto notes, sorry. I admitted that Toronto notes is a very big thing that I used in medical school as well. I don't know. Some persons like it, others don't. I like the fact that it's in point format. It really highlights salient points. So I use the Toronto notes, my notes from medical school, as well as the USMLE World question bank. Okay, so 
your notes. I like Toronto notes at school too, again, because it did have that point format. Um, and I mean, you're doing Canadian exams. I feel like Toronto notes. Exactly. Cool. It's, it's the a whole good area. one. Yeah. Everyone mentions Toronto notes. So the only thing is that because the exam is multi, well, not multidisciplinary, but it covers different subject areas. Usually when we're using Toronto notes on a specific rotation, we're just zoned in on that. So mm-hmm. it can be overwhelming to look at it in its entirety. It's a thousand page document. So I would say, you know, break it down. What I had to do was create a timetable and say, okay, so for this week, I'm doing obstetrics and gynecology. Next week, internal medicine. Next week, pediatrics, surgery, uh, that sort of thing. And try to allot enough time to each area so that way I don't feel overwhelmed. There's also like populational health or public health so statistics, those things that we learn, epidemiology, uh, ethics. It's very broad-based, I would say. So you have to ensure that you're giving each area enough attention. How did you know the layout of the MCQ exam? Okay, so good point. The Medical Council of Canada does offer practice tests which are the only thing that's out there, and I can attest to that, that resembles the actual exam. That's what I'll say. The USMLE View World, or the Step 2 CK gets close, but you'll see if you're doing both, because there are persons who do both, the framework or the stem of the questions are a bit different. USMLE tends to have lengthier stems, go more in detail. The QE1 is much shorter, and usually just wants to get to the core question, like, what is this? So the Medical Council of Canada offers practice tests. They're also not cheap. It's about $500 for a full practice test, and I believe somewhere around 200 for one of the mini ones. So the exam has two parts. The first part is strictly multiple choice. The second part has what we call clinical decision-making questions. So they're more short answer questions, usually include questions around like, what do you think the diagnosis is, what sorts of investigations you'd like to do, and what type of treatment. But they're not paragraphs or essays, they're just one-liners, and oftentimes they specify exactly what they want, whether they want three investigations, two pharmacological treatments. So they're very direct and very specific. Okay, you did the MCQ and then the OSCE, or could you choose whichever order you did it in? So I did the MCQ first and then the OSCE because in my mind I thought it had been two and a half years since I'd studied like that. It would have been a good refresher to remember some of the things in terms of that you'd be looking for on physical exam or in an OSCE setting, but you definitely can do the OSCE before it's up to you what order you want to do it in. The only thing is that you have to do both exams by a specified period, and that depends on each cycle. So for last year and this year, the deadlines and the dates have been pushed back a little bit, so you'd have to double-check that cut-off date by when you'd have to have both exams, but the order is really up to you. Okay, so how long was the MCQ exam? So... It was quite long. It started at 9 and finished around 6. So it was 9 hours, but you do get an hour break for lunch. It's 9 hours long? Yeah, so it's from 9 to 
96. Yeah, remember 96. So the first part is the multiple choice, and you get four hours to do 210 multiple choice questions. I remember that so clearly because I was like, it's not even one minute per question. So you have to be very strategic. Um, well, yeah, 210 questions in... 240 minutes that's right so four hours but you don't have to, you don't you don't even have two minutes sorry per question or maybe even a minute and 30 seconds to check over so that had made me very anxious but I was able to finish it in the time and to, from what I'm hearing it's similar or even less stressful than the USMLE step 2k which is quite long and you get less breaks but yep nine hours in total well nine hours with that one hour break so these exams really seem more of like endurance versus, uh, I don't want to say versus knowledge, because obviously persons doing these exams have completed or at least are in the final year of their examination. So the knowledge is there, but it's really about understanding like how long the exams take and knowing how to take the exam in a way that's not going to like make you feel flustered or overwhelmed. Exactly. I think it's <laughs> it's very strategic. And I mean, for everything, I guess you have to sort of narrow down and weed out, uh, for want of a better word, try to cut down. And so, you know, it's just like with a sport or a performance, it's really who comes up and shows the best on that given day. So one thing for me that I had tried to do was time myself in my own practice to simulate the exam setting because I'll never forget, just like my surgical exam, my final MBBS surgical exam, where we had so many multiple choice questions to do. We had those essays to write and time was running out and I felt like I wasn't adequately prepared. I didn't show my best self just because I didn't practice enough with that time management. So that's something I really wanted to work on. Uh, but you're right, it's a test of endurance because you not only have to be thinking but your own body is hard to sit up straight for so long and to keep at it when your body is saying oh just give up or you're tired but just think about the end goal and then that should be motivation enough that's what i would say that's what i used anyway and the mcq was the one that you did online or did you do both of them online remotely so i did the mcq online I did my OSCE in person. That was the last time they had the OSCE in person because they had to cancel the next sitting of that one. But I do know there were talks about having a virtual OSCE. I'm mm -hmm. not sure if that was decided or if they're continuing with in person. But for my OSCE, I remember I was the last group that we got to do it in person. I even had to travel out of town for my OSCE exam. The only difference is that we didn't touch patients which was very strange because for an OSCE, you're used to doing physical exam and trying mm -hmm. to find, you know, positive findings. But because of COVID and it was in the Heights, I did it in September. So about a month, just under a month after I did my multiple choice. So we really just had to say what we would do and what we'd be looking for. But that's very atypical. So tell me how was the OSCE? The OSCE was, again... For me, very reminiscent of MBBS days. They're a little bit less stressful, I found, but that could have been because of the element that I just had to say what I would do as opposed to having someone critique 
how I palpate it for the spleen or for the liver. And there are differences with examination skills between Jamaica and Canada. So it would be helpful to ask someone what the differences are if you're able to get that information. For me, I mentioned that I had a colleague who she had gone through it the year before, and so I'd asked her. She recommended the Edmonton Manual, so that's coming out of Alberta, which basically outlines how they do their physical exams. Most of it is identical, but one thing that stood out for me, for example, for the abdominal exam, they would listen to bowel sounds first before palpating. So they're just minor details. I don't know how that would affect you in an exam if you were supposed to do it how you're comfortable, but I think the important thing is that you know what you're doing and you know why you're doing it. In terms of the time, I thought there was good time to do each station. The questions, I can't remember all of them, to be honest, but they weren't too hard or nothing that we wouldn't have been used to. And the examiners were all very cordial. So it was a good experience. It was for me. How did you prepare for the OSCE? You just used that manual that you spoke about? So that's right. So I used that manual as well as my McLeod's from, from pre-clean and clinical days. But I also just, I used to make notes of exam physical exams what this was in third year I had compiled like a a step-by-step thing for each exam each system and what positive findings could mean in terms of coming up with a differential so those are I didn't I don't think I think I went more in depth for my multiple choice and then I felt more confident with my OSCE because I had the experience I was examining patients I'd already gone through MBBS so I don't think anything could have been worse but <laughs> that's basically what I use Edmonton manual my clothes and then my personal notes and practice of course because it's an OSCE right well you say you didn't touch the patients so, so that's true how did it go how can you give me like an example of a station that you had sure so if there's a psych station, you would just do a mental status exam, which wouldn't require you touching the patient anyway. If there was a counseling station, same thing, that wouldn't change because you wouldn't have to touch. For the physical exam station, they would give you a background and say, okay, the patient came in with so-and-so or, you know, these symptoms perform uh, or tell us what you'd be looking for or what you would do in an abdominal exam or a cardiovascular exam. Um, and so you walk through what you would do. So you'd inspect, you would palpate, percussive mister, and then auscultate. And you go through that. If there's any other unique maneuvers that you would want to do, fine. And then they'd probably ask, okay, so what would you be looking for? What would you expect to find if the patient had this? And then you would say, so and so, what treatment would you expect? It also had, I believe, a few ECGs or one or two stations where you had to look at labs that lab investigations or results to see that it was all tied into the scenario so to the case but just an added layer of something to do I don't know if that was always the case or it was just added in because we couldn't touch patients but from my understanding I think it was there before so it's all encompassing really okay when you said ECG my heart just like went back to fat um fair oh. medicine um, Oski, where we had to look at each other, I was like, what? what? Okay. I know. When they gave you the labs, did they at least give you the, the range? The reference, so yep, yep. Okay. They do. They do. Okay, then it's not 
so bad. But basically, the Aussie just seemed like uh, um, a conversation. Like, you have the patient exactly. in front of you, and you're exactly. just talking. Okay. Except for the counseling ones, where you definitely have to engage a patient, right? But that's basically very, very, very similar to mm-hmm. MBBS. Did you find that the counseling stations were... Like, if you prepared in the way you prepared for MBBS for our counseling stations, that you'd have done well in the Canadian exams? That's very interesting that you'd ask that because I actually don't think so. Not from the sense that what we were taught and what we were doing is not right. Just, I think it's a difference in culture and difference in practice. I remember when I was practicing for the OSCE and simple like antenatal counseling, it was, you know, you start off what you do at at the first visit and how many visits they'd have, what they should expect, like in terms of ultrasounds and that sort of thing. But the counseling here is much different in terms of, okay, yes, you can mention how many visits they'll have, but you also have to talk about what their diet should be like. You mentioned the prenatal vitamins, which we would do before. This is just an example, of course, not that I had this station, but just changing mm-hmm. your, your mind in terms of the framework. Uh, so you talk about safe activities, like what activities they shouldn't be doing. And I guess these are all things we, we in theory, should have been doing, but we were more focused on the medical aspects, whereas the counseling here is more taken into account outside of that when we talk about like the biopsychosocial outside of the biological aspect and thinking about okay what else is there looking at the pregnancy as a whole picture they might okay. have to change their life in terms of what activities they can do what types of food they can eat like those sorts of things which I really didn't think about before it was more just get to the medical problem this is what we're gonna do and almost ignore the other sides I think that's one thing I've heard about persons who have done like fellowships or um, mm-hmm. observerships and stuff in Canada is that it's very patient centered mm-hmm. um, exactly. in terms of that aspect. That's so true. And even for my station, for the counseling, I, I can't remember what the, the STEM was or what I was supposed to do, but it was more, more just having a conversation. So, you know, you couldn't fall back on that clutch of, okay, I know what this diagnosis is. I can tell you what you need to do. It was trying to get through to the patient. As you say, really patient-centered. So looking at your communication skills, how you're able to deal with difficult situations when persons don't respond the way that you expect them to, how you manage that, because you have to control your emotions and not get flustered, control your tone of voice, your posture, all of those things, which again, we know in theory, but it's hard to practice or to do it in an exam setting if you're not used to doing it before. Exactly. And how long was the OSCE? The OSCE was, I believe, like half a day, so three, four hours. It was about three, four hours, yeah. Okay. Shorter than the multiple Yeah, choice. much, much, much shorter. <laughs> I think I was finished by about 12. I started at nine or something. So three or four mm-hmm. hours was, was much shorter. Okay, is it similar to our OSCE situation where you have rest stations or you're just going, going, yeah. going? Yeah, for sure. I don't know if anyone does OSCEs without rest stations. That would be very inhumane. But <laughs> yes, we did have about <laughs> two rest stations. <laughs> okay. All right. So you've done the exams, right? Mm-hmm. You did the MCQ and the OSCE. Yeah. And I think the difference with this and all the others is that a lot of your preparation 
the ones that you got from Canada were mostly like the Toronto notes and then mm-hmm. the Edmonton manual and then mm-hmm. really falling back on some MBBS knowledge, right? Mm-hmm. So in terms of preparation-wise, it seems comparatively maybe simple enough, mm-hmm. maybe, uh, you know? But then you finish the exams, but it, they don't seem to have a lot of, what's the word I'm looking for, resources available. So it's not yeah. like USMLE where they literally have places that are dedicated to helping um, international medical graduates yeah. get through and do USMLE and get into the States. PLAB is like right in the middle. But mm-hmm. Canada, I think maybe why persons think Canada is so difficult is because the information is, you know, not as readily available. Yeah, I would, I would agree to an extent. Mm-hmm. I'll say if you're if you're serious about it and willing to do the, do the research, you can find yeah. it because really and truly, once I started going on the just the, even the source verification, which was the first step, I just went onto the Medical Council of Canada's website to see what the steps are, and they they've outlined it pretty simple: the ways that you can get into medicine here. What is difficult is that the spots are very limited and. Some years ago, it changed that, for instance, to get into residency, you had to be a Canadian citizen or permanent resident. I think that was more from the standpoint that it's funded by the governments, mostly the provincial government. So, I, I mean, that I don't know if that what the reasoning behind that was. But that's an added element of why I don't believe that to be <laughs> applying to ERAS or the US, you have to be a citizen or permanent resident Mm-mm. if you're an international you just have to be sponsored basically okay. by the university that you're or the hospital that you're going to so that's interesting so the the other thing i would say is that some years ago i think maybe in fourth year on when we were doing our first elective that was the first time i had traveled to canada i'll never forget it because i visited the university of toronto at the time wanted to do an elective but by the time I'd emailed the person who was in charge of that, the applications had already closed and they only had elective spots in June, like in that summer period for international medical students. So that was already passed. I couldn't do it because, you know, at that time I would have already selected my order for fourth year. So it was a no-go, fine. And I remember going to, I can't remember which office it was, but maybe the postgraduate medical office and asking like what was the process if you were an international student and you wanted to do further training here just to find out like at the time I wasn't really thinking it was just you know let's I'm here let's see and at the time they told me that you you could be sponsored by the government to do your training but I don't believe that Jamaica is on that list mm-hmm because there are other persons from like Saudi Arabia and those Middle Eastern countries who do residency programs here. The government fund it, but they're expected to return home afterwards. Oh, I think with Jamaica, the issue is that we already have those programs and it's not cheap. So to send students or residents abroad to do postgraduate training, unless it's a fellowship or something super specialized that the need from a cost benefit analysis side of things i don't think it that's the reason why they they're not in that agreement but 
I know years ago it, it wasn't like that, but it changed. So that's also an added layer onto things that you'd have to try mm-hmm. to to get uh, some sort of residency status here before starting the program, if you're interested. Oh, so basically, if you want to go to Canada, you have to kind of be like, okay, try and get, it's not like you can get a student visa or some kind of sponsorship per se. You really have to um, be like a permanent resident. So it's a big decision. There are other ways to get into medicine and Mm -hmm. But that depends on the province. So some provinces like Manitoba or Saskatchewan, they have what's called a practice-ready assessment, where if you are a physician and you completed post-graduate training, because in North America and just like in the UK, I believe, well, mostly North America, you need to have post-graduate training before you're you're able to practice independently, which is Mm -hmm. quite different from Jamaica. But if you were already trained say you were a specialist you did your residency or fellowship training already and then you decided to move to Canada then you could undergo a practice ready assessment where you basically work under someone who's licensed and they would say okay yes they're fit to practice here but Ontario which is where I am does not have that right Mm -hmm. now but it's in the works basically okay that's interesting going to Canada is definitely like an actual commitment not just money wise but in terms of if you want to be a doctor in Canada you're gonna have to decide that this is somewhere that you want to reside permanently or become a permanent resident or a citizen to even try and get into the program yes that's that's okay all right (laughs) it's a big decision and I I mean if anyone ever asks me I, I always say you know it's something that you have to think about and really see if you're ready to make the commitment because as you said it's a big decision mm-hmm. i didn't realize that i think i thought it was like most other countries where you know you could just get like a student visa and you know you're just there studying mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. I, th- I think a lot of the times too it's when you get to the point of being ready to apply to the CARMS and you're looking through all of the the program descriptions and program requirements and you realize okay must be a canadian citizen or permanent resident and you actually have to show proof of that and i've heard stories of persons who applied and maybe their their residency in, in terms of permanent residency status was in the works didn't come through and they weren't able to start the program had to forfeit that because it's now mandatory you have to Ooh, okay Guess I'll have to have a podcast on how to become a permanent resident. At True, some point. I think I, <laughs> I think know. That's another, another, another. There are ways. There are ways for sure. And Canada is looking for skilled workers, but that's a, a different story. I think we have to do that in the next the next session. <laughs> so, all right. So you've completed the exams. How mm-hmm. did you go about applying for pediatrics? Okay. Yes. So after I did the exams, this was about August, September now of last year, I realized that while my exams are behind me, I have done nothing since December of 2019. And so there's a big gap in a CV, especially if you're looking to apply for residency. So, I mean, around, I want to say around July, because I started thinking about it before, 
I started trying to reach out to persons, but again, this is in a pandemic, so it's harder. I'm trying to reach out to persons for any opportunities, whether research opportunities, clinical opportunities in the sense of observership, because unless you're licensed, you're not able to touch patients or to practice medicine. So th- that was my main focus. And then finding a job, to especially in healthcare, which would at least make me familiar with the system. And I thought that would be an asset to say, okay, you know, I've been working in this role for a few months, so and so, and, and try to create that profile that we spoke about earlier. So I was able to connect with some physicians who were trained from UE, Mona, and realized that there's actually an alumni group here. And many of us won't even know that they fund some of the prizes at our pledge ceremony. So some of those prizes that I give now, I mean, I wasn't fortunate enough enough to get one, but that's fine. Some of those cash prizes are actually <laughs> are actually funded by by so the, the name of the group is the UA Medical Alumni Association Canadian Chapter. And I actually came across that in Facebook. I don't know if it's the algorithm or what. I was just scrolling one day, popped up in my suggestions, and I decided to reach out to them. And so that was great because it allowed me to connect with people who I wouldn't have met otherwise. And I didn't have to leave the comfort of my home. And I was able to secure two observerships. One was in family medicine, one was in pediatrics with physicians here. Uh, And I did that around August, September, October. And from that, that led to one of those physicians connecting me with another UE-trained doctor who was in research, doing things with COVID. And even though, so backtrack a little bit, in about March, so early 2020, when I was still, I was cold calling, sending out emails, trying to get into research because I really didn't have much of a research experience to say as opposed to other candidates would, especially in North America. So I wanted, to, I noticed that that was a deficit, wanted to get some experience, but everyone basically said no because of the pandemic. So I'd forgotten about it for a while, thought it was impossible, but by a roundabout way, I guess, after doing my observerships, trying to make a good impression in that, uh, just the basic things too. I always try to tell people just being punctual, asking questions. You might not know everything, but once you show that you can be trusted and you're mm-hmm. eager to learn, you never know. Because I, I wouldn't have known that that connection would have been formed you know out of that but so, so it's really about like showing interest and actually interest. saying that this is important to me I exactly. find that your time is valuable and a big thing that I want to say before I move on so a lot I, and this is something I didn't know before coming as I said when I came I was basically naive to everything other than knowing that I had to do the exams a lot of persons try to secure observerships to get letters of reference so that's going to take us to when the application period actually starts and you're creating your application. I had already known who I wanted to ask for my reference letters from before. I, I reached out to them when I was moving and I said, okay, you know, I'm planning to do this thing and I wanted to write a reference letter. So I had secured that. Didn't think it was an issue until I was doing the observership where, you know, they have some sessions online too that Health Force Ontario, which is this group that tries to get persons who are newcomers to Canada, get them matched to some, I use, use match because a lot of things is matching, but they basically try to get 
jobs for them in the health field if they're not able to do what they're qualified for like say you're a doctor can we find something else that you can do in the meantime just so you know you have an income so there are some sessions that they had all virtual which spoke about the whole CARMS process what to expect and they mentioned too that letters of references from Canadian physicians are preferred to reference mm-hmm. letters of references from other countries or the US is second tier I'd say but it basically comes from a standpoint that if they can contact someone who is working in a similar setting that they are or if I have someone write a letter of reference for me who was trained in Canada is practicing here knows the system that carries more weight than a, a Jamaican physician who worked with me while I was working in Jamaica. Not to say it's not important, but just to know, I like to say Canadians like Canadian. Uh, I don't know if it's the same other places, but... Yeah, this is actually a recurring theme in some of my USMLE podcasts. Okay. Where references, they prefer to, to be able to say, okay, this person actually works in my context. Yep. And sometimes, especially if like their persons, they're more likely to, you know, know them mm-hmm. or know of them. Exactly. So their words carry a little bit more weight um, for them. And that would be especially beneficial if you did an elective. So as I said, I had tried to do one. It didn't work out. But for persons who did electives at Canadian hospitals or institutions and were able to ask that person, for a letter of reference, then it would be even better because they would have been able to see their clinical skills, how they work. My letters were from observerships, and so that's why it was even more important for me to show that interest, uh, show my knowledge base, show my professionalism just in the sense of being punctual, properly dressed, because then they could talk about those things, and then I would then supplement with my references from Jamaica who could speak to my clinical acumen, like how I was able to work, teamwork skills, those sorts of things. Okay. Can you just repeat the name of the group or website that helps you to link oh, sure. with um, healthcare? So I'm actually a part of that group now. Things come full circle. So it's the University of the West Indies Medical Alumni Association, the Canadian chapter. And mm-hmm. we have a website on Facebook, trying to sort out the Instagram. But it's basically a group of physicians who are now in Canada who are trained in U- um, at UE. And not just UE Mona, it could be Augustine, Kville, but uh, I guess a kind of diaspora of medical professionals here. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you did your observerships. You got through with the research link, mm-hmm. luckily. Um, how did you actually apply for residency? So I applied or applications opened in November. It's usually around September, but because of COVID was pushed back. So in terms of applying, again, you need to register with the CARMS, which I spoke about. So C-A-R-M-S, the Canadian Resident Matching Service, and create an account with them. There is another fee to create that account. To be honest, I don't quite remember. I want to say it's maybe around 300. Uh, That would be a safe figure. I'm not sure. But you create that account. And then once the programs upload their program descriptions or requirements, what's necessary to apply, 
then you can basically go through and make a personal decision of which programs you wanted to apply for. You had asked me earlier how I got to applying for peds. So for me, it was always pediatrics, even in medical school, I had a strong liking for pediatrics. But I think that got pers- I got persuaded by others and, you know, their opinions. But in internship, again, love my pediatrics rotation. And fast forward to MO, I actually wanted to do anesthesia. So it was always pediatrics or anesthesia. And I have also like my anesthesia rotation. So I applied for that for MO. But I, I don't know if you want to say fate would have it that <laughs> the SMO at the time, she thought I would have been good for pediatrics. And so she placed me in pediatrics, even though that was not on my list, not first, second or third. And I liked the environment. That was one thing. And I also liked the experience. It was great teaching and I thought I had the support. Initially, you know, of course, I was like, boy, I didn't get through for what I wanted. And Mm -hmm. it felt like it was history repeating itself because the same thing had happened when I applied for internship, wanted to go to KPH, but they relocated me to Spanish town. So I was like, oh my gosh, why did this Lesson in disguise. But exactly. (laughs) And I had that six months. And what I realized when I was looking through those program descriptions or actually just thinking about what specialty to apply to, so everyone always says that, you know, family medicine is your best bet. And so I wasn't even thinking outside of family medicine. I'd never met anyone who had matched into a program outside of family medicine. Mm-hmm. So I was like, you know, I just focus on family medicine. <laughs> but I was like, let me try. Give it, a, you know, give it a shot. And so I looked through and I realized that they actually said, if you had focused clinical work or experience in the area, so in that specialty, it would be seen as an asset. So I said, okay, well, I have six months of peds and I also did, you know, some pediatrics in internship. So maybe I have a shot. Again, it was just a, a thought at the beginning because for me, I didn't know anyone who applied to two different specialties. So that was also something, you know, so you're basically doing, say if you are applying to one program or one specialty and five programs, I would have been applying to double that because I'm now doing two specialties. So it seemed like a mountain and I just was not prepared for that. But after I got the experience for through the observership in family medicine and pediatrics, I thought, okay, I had a compelling profile for both and I may just be able to do it. So when the profile or the applications opened, the basic stuff where like you put in your Sorry, info. what what website was this on? So it's the CARMS website. C-A-R- okay, so everything is on that website. Yeah. So it's C-A-R-M.C-A, harm.ca. And they have very helpful info in terms of letting you know what will be required, what the deadlines are, what the dates are to guide you through the process. And the help service, I will say, is very good. I've utilized it in terms of calling, emailing, trying to get extra details. Uh, in terms of the application... So first you have to put in basic stuff like, you know, your information, when you graduated med school, where you did it. Uh, I think that's mostly it. And then I also mentioned that you'd have to show proof of your permanent residence status or citizenship status and upload documents in terms of your medical school degree or a transcript 
for me, since I had already verified those two physicians apply, I was just able to link it and so I didn't have to worry about that again. But if you did, I guess if you didn't do everything through them, then you'd have to upload those documents, get them notarized, which is also another fee. But <laughs> um, yeah, so basically the process is mostly personal statements, letter of references, the exam scores, if you have any observerships or research experience or publications. So those are the main things. Also, if you did any electives, so clinical electives in med school, which they call undergrad medical training. And if you were previously in a postgrad training, like a residency training, if you did that or had any postgrad electives. For me, my internship counted as postgraduate, but it was broad-based and you specify that it's internship and it's not a residency program, but it's still considered clinical work experience. Okay, so internship is considered postgraduate, but not like postgraduate. As that exactly. So it, I think because there are some programs across the world where the internship is required before you get that degree, that's what makes the distinction. But for us, we get mm-hmm. the degree and then you do internship um so so i think that's why the difference is there yeah um and you applied for both family medicine and pediatrics true i I did about as i said so you have to do a personal statement for each program Mm -hmm. you're applying for uh and each program has different specifications in terms of letter of references often they'll say at least three no more than five and at least one should be from someone who's in the area or the discipline. So if you're applying for family medicine, you should have one from a family medicine person. If you're applying for pediatrics or internal medicine, at least one should be from one of those areas. There's some programs too that may ask for a non-medical person, I guess for a judge of character who you are outside of medicine. Mm-hmm. But that's the main theme and the personal statements can vary from basic things like okay tell us about yourself why you want to do this like tell us what in your training or your experience has led you to wanting to pursue a career in family medicine or in pediatrics and how what you think you can add to the program or you're hoping to get from it basic as that or they can ask you very detailed sometimes very odd things that you really have to think about like one of them for me was something that you taught yourself to do in the last few years and how that has helped you and how that can contribute towards your medical practice which for months I was unable to think of what or like weeks maybe I was unable to think of anything but I don't know it it's very standard but then it can also be different so don't just think that you can use one personal statement for each program or for each specialty did you have an interview process so the interview process is after you've submitted the application and then you have to wait to see if you got interviews they'll email you to let you know if you are successful if you've been invited to an interview and Mm. then you get to the interview um, stage Okay, so we're almost up on our like one hour mark, mm-hmm. but there is, I don't think there's any way that we can like stop and be like, yeah, you're not going to get your interview tips, guys. <laughs> so can we just 
just talk briefly about um, the interview process mm-hmm. and like I, I want us to end on your your tips from your experience on how to do the interview but also how to prepare yourself to actually go to Canada and like words of encouragement okay sure so for my interview process it was strictly virtual because we're again still in the COVID-19 pandemic but prior to that you'd have to travel to each school that offered you an interview so that means cross-provincial traveling back and forth but all of mine were virtual so either on zoom uh, or webex or microsoft teams so in terms of format most of them are like multiple mini interviews which i didn't have much experience with but basically you spend five minutes or ten minutes with each person they ask you a series of questions some of them most of the interviews are the same, so I can just rush through this. They ask you basic things, so tell me a little bit about yourself. Why do you want to do this specialty? What are you looking to gain from the program? What do you think you could add to the program? Others mm-hmm. try to tease out things that you can't really prepare for, so they might ask you to do a teaching session where you're talking to the person across the screen and explaining them, explaining to them what they're supposed to do, like you have a manual and you're explaining what they can't see, or you're describing a picture to them and trying to get them to guess what you're saying. Other things they might ask you about experiences that you had, like difficulties, something that you had to overcome, a challenging time, what you think your strengths and weaknesses are, basic questions. And my preparation was just really by going on YouTube and filming short videos of myself, looking at how I would enunciate or gestures that I make I'd ask friends to practice with me or family members relatives yeah so that was mostly it I'd say the best way to prepare for an interview is to practice but also to ask persons who've been through it not just as a candidate but as an interviewer so Mm -hmm. some of the physicians that I worked with like just to ask them for tips to prepare and what would be good how to structure your your answers and what they might be looking for when they ask a certain question uh but that's what that's the best thing i could say just practice 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 even when you think you've practiced enough you you probably haven't so just keep practicing keep going over the same questions and if you're preparing for an interview even if it's the same specialty every program is different to do your research so that was one thing i did for every interview i treated it like it was my first and i researched the program in detail wrote down things that i liked things that i wanted to ask about because you always want to ask questions at the end of the interview to think for, for them to know that you're interested and seem like you know you want to really get into the program so those little things which sometimes it's repetitive it's monotonous you feel like why am i doing this you know i've already gone through three interviews and I'm doing a next one, like what really could change. But that was something that I think really helped me. And I would give as a tip to, to anyone mm-hmm. going through that. Okay. Thank you. So this has been a lot. It is right? a lot. I, <laughs> I learned a lot, um, especially things that I just didn't know. As I said, I didn't really have much experience mm-hmm. with Canadian exams. But I do know that they're... A lot of persons who have their hearts set 
on going to Canada mm -hmm. um, out of all, instead of anywhere else. So I think that this would be a little bit useful for them, especially seeing that, seeing somebody who was in their position, meaning, um, you know, a Caribbean graduate mm -hmm. and is now in Canada. What are some words of maybe encouragement that you would give persons listening who are at the start of their journey mm -hmm. um, who want to do residency in Canada? So first I would say is think about it hard, think about it in detail and make a plan. So I don't think I had a plan. As you said, I, 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 I don't want to say lucky, but I was blessed enough that things worked out in my favor. But if you had known before that you this is what you wanted to do and you're going after it, then just make a plan with timelines. Because as I said, some of the things do have deadlines that you have to do them by. The other thing is don't pay attention to what's out there. When I was reading about Canada and trying to transition if I had followed everything that I saw I probably wouldn't have done it I wouldn't have made the first step because it's it seems very daunting and as I said it's it's difficult but it's not impossible at the time mm. I was going through it in at the initial stages I also didn't know anyone who matched but it's after you know and connecting with people and different colleagues that you find that there are success stories and it can be done and never think that, you know, it couldn't happen to you or you're running out of time. It would never happen. I'll just use my experience of the research when everyone was saying, okay, no, you can't. Or even observerships when I had started initially because of the COVID, they're like, no, we're not allowing anyone in hospital into offices. And I really thought it would not be possible. Even my exams were postponed. I wasn't sure if I was going to make the deadline. And the way that everything unfolded, and just literally just in time for me to be able to apply and all the opportunities that came about, it, it really motivated me not only to go after it, but to also let people know that it's possible. And I think I've been really trying to do that. If you need assistance, ask for people. I'm always available. You can reach me at my first name, that last name, at sickkids.ca. Or you can reach out to the UA Medical Alumni Association Canadian Chapter. I also can relate to the fact that the information is not readily available. So I, I just try to help people wherever I can. And just if you're really motivated or you really are focused on what you want and work towards it, then you can achieve it. That's all I, that's all I have to say. Okay. Thank you so much for um, being a part of this. I know I... When you talk about, you know, how you got to see the um the alumni association um on your Facebook and it was like, you know, was it the, the algorithm? It's so <laughs> funny because what I'll say is that I had put out um I think my latest episode on USMLE about like how to ace the interview parts of it and someone commented on it like, Okay, are you going to put out something on Canada? Because I had put out something for UK and I had put out something for USME. So I was getting questions about Canada now. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, boy, the only persons I know that have been to Canada have just been for fellowships. You okay. know, a lot of Jamaican postgraduate persons go for their fellowship. And yeah. I know a few who are there still now. Mm -hmm. And I was on LinkedIn. Kid you not. And he just mm -hmm. popped up on my LinkedIn. And <laughs> I said, wait a minute. <laughs> Pediatrics. 
Canada. <laughs> and because we weren't friends on LinkedIn, I couldn't send you a message. I was like, no, man, mm-hmm. I must know somebody who knows her. <laughs> and that's really how we got in touch. And you have been like very helpful. So I'm very grateful. And mm-hmm. I think more persons now will have information and especially be aware of the Alumni Association and mm-hmm. hopefully will reach out to you. So thank you so much for sharing your experience no and your tips my with pleasure. us. I'll definitely say though that it's a lot to debunk for sure. And there are even things that I'm thinking about now that we didn't get to touch on. So I'm also open if you want to do like a second session where we can go into more granular details and touch on some of the things I didn't get to. I'm also open to that. Yes, sure. I think having gone through the process, the one thing I can do is just help other people know that it's possible. And mm-hmm. any questions they have or any tips I can give them, I'm very open to doing that. So. Okay, definitely. Thank I'm totally you. up for part two. Thank I'm totally you so up for much that. for having me, Samantha. This is yeah. great, by the way. Great. Thank you. All right. So thank you guys for listening. If you want to reach out to me, um, you can send me a message on my profiles or on Instagram or on Twitter at the Layman's DR. You can send me an email at thelaymansdoctor at gmail.com or you can even send me a message through my website thelaymansdoctor.com thank you so much for listening and until next time have a good day